well, I don't know what you think of when you think of God, but I'm here to help clear some of that up for you today. As we saw several weeks ago, the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because it will determine every dimension of your life. And many people have this idea that Jesus is always and only angry and that he's just chomping at the bit to nuke all of us. Listen, if Jesus wanted to nuke us and wipe us out, he would. We have all given him many reasons and ample opportunities to nuke us and to take us out. If he wanted to, he would. He is God after all. If he wanted to nuke us and wipe us out, he would. And yet, he hasn't yet. Here we are. But why? Why haven't the proverbial lightning bolts come down from heaven and descended upon us and fried all of us into oblivion? Why? Well, the short answer is this. Because he's merciful. Because he does not give us what we all deserve. And because he's surprisingly patient. Peter said in his second epistle that this world is stored up for fire, being kept until the day of the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so Jesus is patiently waiting for sinners right now to repent and to turn to him in faith. Maybe he's waiting on you to do that. Maybe you haven't repented yet. Which just means to change your mind. Maybe you haven't repented and acknowledged that you have offended God by your life. Which you have, by the way. Maybe you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet. Maybe you'll do that today. Will you come to Jesus today if you haven't already? Why not? Why not right now? Just call out to him and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, and forgive me, save me. I know, I know I'm breaking all the rules of preaching And putting a call to repent and trust Jesus at the beginning of the sermon instead of at the end, like most preachers do. Oh well, I like breaking rules. I'm a rule breaker. So there you have it, right at the beginning of the sermon. A call to repent and trust in Jesus. A call to come home to Jesus. And if you don't repent, the Apostle Peter and the rest of the Bible, for that matter, tells us that if you don't run to Jesus for salvation, then you have nothing to look forward to in eternity but everlasting punishment in the fires of hell. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anyone. So if you haven't, come home to Jesus today. He'll have you. As messed up as you are, he'll take you. And he'll forgive you, and he will adopt you into his family, and he will be your big brother, and God will be your father. Does that sound like good news? It does, because it is. 
So come home today so that I can tell all the people who are upset at me for breaking all the preaching rules by having an appeal to come to Jesus at the beginning of the sermon. Come home to Jesus so that I can tell them that it worked. And so I said, as I said just a second ago, I don't know what you think of when you think of God, but I'm here to clear some of that up for you today. So many people think that God is always and only angry. Even his own children often think that. And so let me clear it up for you. God's not trigger happy. He's just happy. God is infinitely happy and he wants us to share in his happiness. He wants us to glorify and enjoy him in this life and in the next. And so God is not trigger happy. God is not itching to give you a switching. He doesn't have his finger on the trigger waiting like a sniper to take you out. You're not in his crosshairs, Christian. But that's how many people see God. Even his own adopted children see him that way. Especially when they suffer and when they experience his discipline. Sam Alberry says, But while both God's love and wrath are undeniable and necessary features of his dealings with us, they are not symmetrical. They do not spring from the same central part of God's being with equal force. The two are not parallel components of God's work. But while such judgment is undeniable, it is not what lies deepest in God's purposes for his people. It is not where his heart ultimately lies. What is central to God instead is his compassion and faithfulness. His judgment is real, but it is not foundational. His love and anger are not symmetrical. Relationally, God is compassionate and loving with his children. But God's anger is real. And if you don't trust in his son Jesus, then you sit under his wrath right now. And that's why you need to repent. Because hell is real. I know that's not popular to say these days, but I wouldn't be a loving pastor if I didn't tell you that. God's anger against our sin is real, but it is not central God's love and compassion are foundational. At the heart of the triune God is this deep desire to bless his people, to have his people enjoy him. I mean, is that how you think of Jesus? That's somebody that I enjoy. That's how Jesus wants you to think of him, that you would enjoy him. Does that sound odd? It shouldn't because that's the God of the Bible. He created you to enjoy Him. God's desire is for His people to enter into His glory and experience His happiness, for them to experience the love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So His judgment is real, but it's not foundational. And since Jesus was judged on the cross for us and in our place, God never punishes his children. Listen, Christian, you were judged at the cross 2,000 years ago. 
And God declared you righteous and forgiven when you trusted in his son. And when you stand before God to give account, what is he going to say to you? Forgiven. Enter into the joy of your master. Christian, you were judged 2,000 years ago at the cross when Jesus died in your place and for your sin. And so God never punishes his children, but he does discipline them. There's a difference. Jesus was punished on the cross for our sins, and so God will never punish us for our sins because Jesus took care of that. But God is a loving Father, and so he will discipline us. That means then... That you're not cruising for a bruising, Christian. God is not an angry father. He's not going to beat you black and blue. But he will discipline you if you are his child because he loves you. And that's what we'll see in 1 Kings chapter 14 today and next week as well. So turn there in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 14. All through the Bible, we see that God disciplines his children and that there are consequences for our sins. I mean, just start with Genesis chapter 3. I mean, don't turn there right now. Turn to 1 Kings 14. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve suffer the consequences of their sins. And if you keep flipping through the Old Testament, you'll see it everywhere. Moses strikes a rock for the second time and he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Jonah gets swallowed up by a big fish. King Jeroboam's hand freezes up. Even the audience of this book, the audience of First Kings, they end up as slaves in exile in Babylon because of their rebellion. And don't think it's just related to the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. Flip through the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they lie in church and they end up at their own funeral. And people eating the Lord's Supper in a selfish way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they either end up in the hospital, in the ER, or at the cemetery. So is God just trigger happy when he does all of this? Is he just itching to pull the trigger on somebody? No, he's a loving father who loves his kids so much that he disciplines them so that they can be transformed and share in his happiness. And that's exactly the process that King Jeroboam resisted throughout his entire life, and it cost him dearly. Look at 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child." Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. 
Thus and thus shall you say to her. And when she came, she pretended to be another woman. And so Jeroboam, the guy who built the two golden cows and placed them in the high places that he built in the cities of Dan and Bethel, the guy who led the nation of Israel in false worship, that guy's little boy gets sick and now suddenly he wants God's help. He has despised God's word all along, but now he seeks out God's word through Ahijah the prophet. He wants nothing to do with Yahweh. The sovereign Lord, the God of the Israelites, he wants nothing to do with Yahweh until his little boy comes down with a life-threatening fever or whatever was wrong with him. You see, even those who worship gold cows need God's help every now and then. Jeroboam is like so many people who want nothing to do with Jesus until a major crisis hits their lives. So Jeroboam tells his wife to disguise herself, take some food, and go to Shiloh to try to trick the prophet Ahijah in order to find out if their little boy is going to kick this sickness. Sadly, King Jeroboam thought that a Halloween costume and some of his wife's homemade blueberry muffins would do the trick. But before she gets there, the Lord told Ahijah, who was basically blind because he was so old and his eyes were so bad, the Lord told Ahijah about Mr. and Mrs. Jeroboam's plans. So when Mrs. Jeroboam showed up at blind Ahijah's house trying to be Mrs. some other woman, it didn't work. Look with your good eyes at verse 6. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend... To be another, for I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone." Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. 
And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. So Ahijah drops a bomb on Mrs. Jeroboam and exposes their secret plan. He tells her that because her husband was so rebellious and didn't walk according to the Lord's ways, then judgment would come upon their house. Because Jeroboam preferred golden cows to God's covenant, then he would say goodbye to his child, his dynasty, and the land. And all three of these things eventually did come to pass. First, their little boy who was sick did die as soon as his mom, Mrs. Jeroboam, walked through their front door. But Ahijah does apply in verse 13 that the little boy would have a normal funeral unlike the rest of the scoundrels in Jeroboam's family. There was something about this boy, the author tells us, that was pleasing to the Lord and so he gets a normal funeral. But with the rest of Jeroboam's family members, they all have dates with either dogs or birds after they die. Their bodies will be eaten by these animals. No proper burial for them. Second, the Jeroboam dynasty is going to be destroyed. Anybody with the last name Jeroboam gets taken out like a mob hit when the mobster boss Baasha whacks all of them and then takes over the family. We'll see that in chapter 15. Third, the nation of Israel is eventually exiled to Babylon and removed from the land, and that happens in 2 Kings chapter 17. So the word of the Lord to Mr. and Mrs. Jeroboam comes true, and it all started when Jeroboam started making some gold cows in his garage on his day off. Jeroboam's sin affected his family. His sin affected generations. We'll see this over and over again through the book and through the rest of First and Second Kings. There's a phrase that gets repeated again and again to describe the other kings who follow in the ways of Jeroboam. Phrases like, he did not turn, he did not depart from, he walked in, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam. Many of the kings that follow Jeroboam walk in his ways. They do not depart from the sins of of Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam's decision to walk away from Yahweh will hang over the next 180 years of Israel's history. I mean, think about that. His actions will affect the next 180 years of Israel's history. Listen, this should sober us. Sure, you can choose to worship the God of your own creativity, just like Jeroboam did. Or you might not build a gold cow in your garage on your day off and call it God and worship it, but you can fashion God into what you want Him to be. You can cater Him to be all that you want Him to be. You can say that you don't want to be hitched to such outdated, ancient ideas about Jesus. You can listen to culture and what culture says about God and about marriage and about sexuality and about gender and about abortion and about money, but it won't be the God of the Bible that you worship. 
You can build all the shrines and altars that you want. You can build all the gold cows in your garage that you want to on your day off. You can come up with your own ideas about God. But you might end up damning yourself and your family for generations. Let me say that again. You can build all the shrines and altars and gold cows in your garage that you want to. You can come up with your own ideas about God and listen to what culture says and what your friends say and what social media says and what some famous actress says. And whatever culture says is acceptable, but you might end up damning yourself and your family for generations. The consequences of our sins can linger for generations. Think about our country, for instance. The slavery of African Americans and the deep hatred of black people that got rubbed into our nation's pores, it still lingers today. The Civil War did not end the mistreatment of black people. The Emancipation Proclamation did not clean out the pores of our nation. That sin still lingers today. We still need cleansing and healing The sins of our nation's forefathers and how they treated black people and how they treated the Native American Indians who were already here when they showed up still lingers. We may not be guilty of the sins that were committed against African Americans back in the 1800s or in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement, And we may not be guilty of the sins that were committed against Native Americans by the founders of this country. But we might be complicit in the preservation of those injustices if we treat either of these groups as less than. We might not be guilty of what happened long ago, but we might just find ourselves complicit by perpetuation of the hatred if we look deep down in our hearts and find that that same hatred is there. May God grant us repentance for any deep-seated racism that might still exist in our pores and in our hearts. Listen, it doesn't matter what sin it is. The consequences of our sins can linger for generations. You can end up like Jeroboam. He exasperated the Lord. He tested the Lord's patience. In fact, two times the author tells us here in this chapter, in verse 9 and in verse 15, that Jeroboam provoked the Lord. This Hebrew word is used all over the Old Testament, usually to describe how God's people have provoked him by their sin and their rebellion. 
It's used in 1 Samuel chapter 1 to describe how mean Penina was to Hannah because Hannah couldn't have any children. Remember that story? Penina was like, nah, 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 nah. you can't have kids, and I do. Remember that story? Smart-mouthed Penina, who had a litter of kids, would provoke and ridicule and belittle Hannah because Hannah's pregnancy test kept showing up with a negative. We would say that Penina was driving Hannah up the wall. And that's the idea behind this Hebrew word provoked. It's like, nah, 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 what are you going to do about it? And when we create our own thoughts and our own image of God and what we want him to be, that's what we're saying to him. Nah, 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 what are you going to do about it, God? That's a scary place to be. That's the idea behind this Hebrew word provoke. All that we read about Jeroboam, the gold cows, the two altars that he built in, in, in the cities of Dan and Bethel, the false sacrifices, the appointing of priests who weren't from the tribe of Levi, the making up of his own annual festival and putting it on the calendar, the have your wife dress up in a Halloween costume and take blueberry muffins too and try to trick a blind prophet, shenanigans, all of that pushed the Lord to the edge. Jeroboam had succeeded at pushing the ever-merciful, extremely patient Yahweh to the edge. Jeroboam simply drove Jesus up the wall. He exasperated him with his sin. He infuriated and provoked him. He tried his patience. He aggravated and goaded Yahweh to bring judgment, and Yahweh finally did. And after all of his patience and all of his mercy and all of his many delays in judgment and all of his repeated confrontations with his word through the prophets, which were ignored by Jeroboam, Yahweh finally says, that's it, no more. All of this delayed judgment and opportunities given to repent and all of this undeserved patience and mercy that was extended to King Jeroboam reminds us that God's not trigger-happy He's just happy. He's happy to share his life with us. Happy to give his righteousness to sinners who don't deserve it. He's happy to forgive their sins. And he doesn't do it reluctantly. God's knee-jerk reaction is to bless his people. Jesus is serious about our happiness. He is serious about being our first love. This is not some slogan of Jesus's. This is reality. This is life. The problem is that we have a really hard time believing it, don't we? We waffle. We're wishy-washy. We oftentimes think of Jesus as not satisfying. And so we gravitate to whatever we believe will make us happy. And that could be anything. Anything. And we buy the lie that blank will provide the happiness we're searching for. And you'd think we'd have it figured out by now, but we don't. The idols that captivate our hearts promise to make us happy, but they don't, and yet we fall for it time after time after time. We're idiots. And so what's the answer? What we need every day is to taste 
the goodness of the Lord all over again? That's the answer. What we need every single day is to taste the goodness of the Lord all over again. That's the answer. That's what we need. We need to taste his sweetness again. Taste the sweetness of his love. This is what we were made for. The biblical story is this, that the triune God creates out of the overflow of his eternal love, and we were made to enjoy and respond to his love. We were made and we were created to get swept up in the love that exists between God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is why God created humanity so that we would be swept away by his eternal love and glorify and enjoy him forever. I mean, put simply, God is a happy God. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He gave us bacon for crying out loud. If you think God is a cosmic killjoy, he gave us bacon, he gave us coffee. Shall I go on? Maple bars, which I had one yesterday and I was trying to be good. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not a curmudgeon. He's not cranky. Jesus does not have resting, cranky face. That's how some people view him. Jesus has resting, cranky face. He's happy. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls him this twice in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.11, he says, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed or happy God with which I have been entrusted. Paul connects gospel with happiness. 1 Timothy 6.15, he who is the blessed or happy and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The word that gets translated there often as blessed is the Greek word happy. So our God is the happy God. Jesus is the infinitely glorious and happy God. I don't know how people in our city think of him, but I doubt that's what they think Jesus is like. It's your job to convince them otherwise. It's your job to know your neighbors, go to school, go to work, and tell people, I don't know what you know about Jesus, but he's the happy God. We serve a happy Savior. John Piper, not a cranky one, John Piper said, it is good news that God is gloriously happy. No one would want to spend eternity with an unhappy God. If God is unhappy, then the goal of the gospel is not a happy goal, and that means it would be no gospel at all. But, in fact, Jesus invites us to spend eternity with a happy God when he says, enter into the joy of your master. Jesus lived and died that his joy, God's joy, might be in us and that our joy might be full. Therefore, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of the happy God. Piper also said, God's glory consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond all our imagination. Happy beyond all our imagination. Wow. Is that how you think of God? Is that how you would describe Jesus to one of your friends? If they ask you, what is Jesus like? Would you say, oh, let me tell you about him. He's the happy God. He's happy beyond all imagination. 
That's what Jesus' Twitter bio says, happy beyond all imagination. And Jesus wants us to get caught up in this eternal happiness and share it with others here in our city. That means God has put you where you are so that you can tell others about this, so that you can tell your neighbors and your coworkers, where you go to school, fellow students, where you buy your coffee, so that you could tell them about Jesus. How do you do that? Maybe you just take them some blueberry muffins. And if they ask why, just say, I, I serve a happy God, Jesus. I don't know if you know that I'm a Christian. I serve a happy God. And I thought, man, God put it into somebody's mind to come up with blueberry muffins, and that's really cool and good. So I thought I'd just make you some. You're wondering, how do I talk to people about Jesus? Make them blueberry muffins. Or go all out and make them some, or buy them some like maple donuts with bacon on top and take them to them. That'll like let their guard down and say, I, I got you these because Jesus is good and he's a happy God. And he, 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 put it, he put it into our taste buds that when maple and bacon come together, it's out of this world. And I just thought I'd let you experience that so you'd know what Jesus is like. Boom. You can talk to your neighbors about Jesus or your coworkers. Jesus wants us to get caught up in that love and that happiness and share it with others. But... As Jeroboam has taught us, he will discipline his children if need be. God doesn't have his finger on the button. God has his hand over his heart, and that's what he wants to share with us. God wants to share his love because God is love. And yes, God is angry. And yes, God does bring judgment, but that's not his knee-jerk reaction. This was God's desire for Jeroboam and company. This was God's desire for the nation of Israel to get caught up in this love and share this love with the nations. But they walked away. They stiff-armed God and drove him up the wall until he finally responded in judgment. And so this is the only thing we really know about King Jeroboam, isn't it? 22 years as king, and this is all we know, how he came up with his own idea about God and how it affected his family for generations. Look at verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. I know these kind of seem like throwaway verses, but they're actually very telling. How long did Jeroboam reign? 22 years. And all of it is is recorded somewhere else in some other book called the Book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. It's not recorded in Scripture. That phrase is not talking about the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles. This is some other Israelite history book that records all that Jeroboam did. We get one story in 2 Chronicles about how Jeroboam got his tail kicked by Abijah and how he lost 500,000 men when he went to battle, but we don't get any other significant details in Scripture about Jeroboam's reign. All that gets recorded in Scripture is how Jeroboam totally suppressed what he knew of God and how it affected every dimension of his life, even the next 180 years of Israelite history. What gets recorded in Scripture about Jeroboam? His worship. His thoughts of God that went contrary to God's word. 
how he had a false view of God. It's that important what you think about God. 22 years worth of wars and capital campaigns and meetings with leaders of other nations and Olympic bid proposals and healthcare reform and book signings and on and on and on. All the stuff that kings do and yet the only thing recorded about Jeroboam is how he got worship wrong. How he worshipped. How he worshipped his own idea of God and how it affected him and his family and his nation for generations. And so all we really know about King Jeroboam is how he totally provoked the Lord and found himself on the receiving end of the Lord's anger. He could have experienced the love and joy and happiness of God. So God's not trigger happy. He's happy. He's happy to send his son Jesus to live and die for us. He's happy to share all the benefits that come to us when we trust in his son. He's happy to forgive us. He's happy to adopt us into his family. He's happy to share his love. If he's itching to do anything, it's to share his love. I mean, he's ready. He's chomping at the bit to love on us. I hope that's how you see him because that's who he is. Let's close with something else that Sam Alberry said. He said, God is slow to anger. He is not touchy and explosive. He is not trigger happy. As Ray Ortland has put it, God is not itching to bring down the hammer. We have to drive him to that. Instead, his spontaneous heart is to love us. God is not slow to love. He's slow to anger. It is his love that has the engine running, always ready to go at a moment's notice. In contrast, his anger has to be worked up within him. The two do not occupy the same place in his affections. Love abounds where anger doesn't. It is is love he possesses in boundless measure, not anger. This is God's penned tweet. Everything else needs to be read in the light of this. It forms the context and framework for everything else God will reveal to us about himself. This faithful, steadfast, covenant love is what we find at the deepest core of God's being. Nothing better expresses the heart of who he is. God's anger is real, but it is not central. Love and wrath are not perfectly balanced on some divine fulcrum. God leans heavily and unmistakably on one more than the other. It is his love that comes from the heart, and therein lies wonderful news and great comfort for his people. That's a great comfort for us this morning. It's good news for people like us who fail all the time and who could never measure up to God's holy standard. His spontaneous heart is to love us. We have to drive him to bringing down the hammer of discipline. His love has the engine running this morning. Even when we drive him up the wall, he has the engine of his love running, ready to peel out and come skidding into our lives with his mercy and with his grace. 
And when we open the empty hands of faith and when we repent and we renew our wedding vows with Jesus, our first love, he peels out of the parking lot and he comes skidding back into our lives. And while the engine is still running, he looks at us and we see him for who he is. The God who is happy beyond all imagination. The God who is happy to save and forgive sinners. You can renew your first love with Jesus this morning, Christian, and he'll peel up in this like fast 1963 Mustang and slide back into your life and just smile and say, hop in. That's repentance. That's renewing your first love with Jesus. And then he'll take you on an adventure. So you better buckle up. So why not reach your hand and your heart out to him today? I think you'll be happy you did, and so will he. And if you do, one day you'll hear Jesus say, enter into the joy of your master. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to hear Jesus say that. Jesus, we can't wait to hear you say that. What a glorious day it will be because our days now are just filled up with selfishness. God, I am so selfish. It's all about me. And I know there are people like that here today. So our days are just consumed with our own little kingdoms and they don't satisfy. The idols that we make don't satisfy and we keep coming back to them. And frankly, we're idiots, Jesus, and we need your wisdom and we need your spirit. Would you open our eyes not to just see how awful our sin is, but to see how wonderful and beautiful you are. That's what's going to change. Help us to taste your goodness all over again today, to renew our wedding vows with you, our first love, and help us to take this love and share it with others in our lives and in our city and here on the Central Coast. Help us, we ask in your name. Amen.